For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. So welcome everyone here in the Zendo and online. I'm very happy to introduce today our guest speaker, Hosan Alan Sanoki, who is the abbot of Berkeley Zen Center and an old friend of Ancient Dragon and of mine. Hosan um, is as well as being a Zen priest and teacher, activist and I actually first got to know Alan, I think it's 55 years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I got to know him first as a musician because he participated in rehearsing uh, prolifically in the apartment I was living in. Uh, one of the, my roommates was uh, at meeting that the group that Alan was in. And uh, so we may get a chance, there's a guitar here, we may get a chance to yeah. hear Alex uh, speak the Dharma and also sing the Dharma. Al, uh, Alan, thank you so much for coming Yeah, I'm really happy to be back here at Ancient Dragon. Uh, and uh, we're in this new location. Uh, I'm sorry you had to let go of your former place, um, but this is perhaps a way station to something else. And uh, it's very cozy here. As the outside, the weather is trying to decide what it wants to do, which probably is fairly typical for Chicago. But I'm happy to be here, and it's, it's also an opportunity for me to visit with my my daughter, Sylvie, who uh, lives here in Chicago. And, uh, so it's just exciting. I haven't been any place, you know, like many of you, perhaps. Uh, actually, this is, this is only the second plane trip that I've been on in four years. The last one, I ended up getting COVID, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that won't happen again. Um, anyway, you're at the beginning of a practice period, is that, is that correct? Sort of in the middle. In the middle. Uh, and the topic of study for the practice period is a no-tierty sutra, correct? Yes. And so I'm going to... I'm going to speak around and about the familiar Kirti Sutra about the practice of bodhisattvas, about, and I think we can discuss this, the uh, sometimes perplexing proposition of non-duality that is really just brilliantly highlighted in the Kirti Sutra uh, in, a, in a very sharp way and sometimes in a, in a quite a humorous fashion, which, uh, which is a relief from some of the uh, Mahayana Sutras. Uh, and, uh, but I'm going to begin with, actually, the chapter that I want to focus on I'm not sure which which translation you're working on. If you heard a lot of you using uh, Robert Thurman's translation. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's chapter eight, uh, which is, is called The Family of the Tathagatas. And uh, I am going to use a, a new translation. Um, by Louis Gomez, Paul Harrison, and a group of others, which is actually taken from relatively recent discovery of uh, the earliest recension, it seems, of the, of the text, uh, which is in Sanskrit. Uh, but it's not very different. In this book, it's, it's chapter 7, 
and it's uh, it's called the lineage of the realized ones. Uh, but I'm going to start and sort of bracket this with uh, I think a perspective on bodhisattvas on us as bodhisattvas. Um, the great teacher, uh, one of the early Zen teachers in the United States, Nyogen Senzaki, uh, he had uh, Zen groups on the West Coast, and he would begin his talks, good morning or good evening, bodhisattvas, because we are all on the bodhisattva path. Uh, so we are manifesting as bodhisattvas at the same time as we are uh, cultivating and learning to become bodhisattvas. Uh, so I'm going to start with something. I have a new book, uh, and there's copies of it there. Uh, For sale, available after yes. the talk. Yes. It's an incredibly wonderful book. It's called Turning Words, Transformative Encounters with Buddhist Teachers, which is basically things that I have heard from my teachers uh, or I've encountered or I've uh, observed. And some of them were teachers and some of them are uh, people who are not officially Buddhist, perhaps. Uh, but I want to read you something that uh, has been really a watchword for me uh, in as a what Tignan Han has what Tignan Han calls North Star Precept. Uh, these are uh, principles that you return to that you can always look up and they will guide you back home. And this is uh, this is about my North Star precept. So I'm going to read you the whole, this whole short piece. Uh, it's pretty short. Uh, so I've been, this is, this chapter is teachings from my wife, Lori. Uh, I've been married to Lori since 1989. We've lived together at Berkeley Zen Center since then. We raised our children, Sylvia and Alexander, here and watched them go out into the world. We have a fortunate marriage and a fortunate life. There are always people in our lives whose needs appear overwhelming. Sometimes those needs are overwhelming for the person experiencing them and for others who try to help them meet those needs. Friends, neighbors, loved ones knock on our door looking for assistance of various kinds at various times. Within our limited material needs, we offer what we can, even when it is not nearly enough. But we can always, or almost always, give our care and attention. We can accompany people. We can listen. Lori came up with this phrase, words we can share explicitly or implicitly. I will not abandon you. I will not abandon you. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh describes as the North Star precept, a principle we have come to in our own words that express the Bodhisattva's vow to awaken with all beings. I will not abandon you. I may not be able to give you all that you, that you need or that you think you need, but I will not turn away from you. In the hardest times, in the middle of the night, you can call me and I will do my best to hold your grief and fear. At least I can do that.
jump ahead a little to the this chapter a little more curiously, and I'm going to go back to the beginning of it, but uh, I think the parallel. So in this, in the chapter, uh, at the end of the chapter, there uh, there are 43 verses, short verses that describe describe. They begin by describing the family of the Tathagatas. Uh, and then they talk about the possessions of the Tathagatas and the qualities of the Tathagatas. Uh, and there's a section that has actually always been deeply meaningful to me. Uh, In the intermediate eons of plague, this is, this is our moment, right? Uh, they, the bodhisattvas, become the supreme medicine. And living beings saved by them become happy and free of sickness. In the intermediate eons of famine, they become food and drink. And they teach the Dharma to all who draw breath after relieving them of their hunger and thirst. In the intermediate eons of war, they remain intent on love, urging many millions, many hundreds of millions of living beings to become free from malice. And in the midst of great battles, those bodhisattvas, as powerful as they are, refuse to take sides, preferring to teach nonviolence. And even in the hells, even to the hells, inconceivable in number that are found attached to all the Buddha fields. The bodhisattvas go of their own free will to promote the welfare of living beings. So the last one is really interesting to me that um, don't have a Buddha field without there being a related hell. And the bodhisattvas are willing to go there to do their work, which is a real challenge to us. Are we willing to go there? So that this seems to me very much uh, in the spirit of I will not abandon you. And we'll see in the song that I'll sing at the end. It's, it's related to the spirit of the Bodhisattva in that song. So just to take that in for a moment. One of the qualities of bodhisattvas that we see at Taigen, uh, where she wrote the book, what's it called now? Faces of Compassion. Faces of Compassion. Uh, I, the early title was Bodhisattva Archetypes, which, which I liked, but Faces of Compassion helped themselves better. <laughs> Subtitle is, uh, is, includes Bodhisattva Archetypes. Um, yeah, if you don't, you know this book, right? Yes. No oh, good. Okay. Um, but what I think, what you can see uh, outlined in this book, and, and you can see in this in this chapter of the, the Malakirti Sutra, is that the Bodhisattva takes whatever form, whatever shape, 
is appropriate in order to meet sentient beings, in order to move suffering. Um, and in a wide way, this is in line with what both Tiknaan and Shunryu Suzuki, their way of translating the paramita, the perfection of patience, of shanti, which is kind of my go-to paramita, if you will. And uh, what Tignahan and Suki Roshi, they translate it as inclusiveness. And my teacher, my late teacher, Sojin Roshi, uh, was always teaching us that we had to include everything. That if there's one side that we're seeing, we should look, his expression was, we should read the other side of the page. We should always recognize that that the other aspect is there. If there's a Buddha field, there's a hell realm. And conversely, if there's a hell realm, there's a Buddha field. Um, so to go back to the beginning of this chapter, it's um, it begins with some questions. Uh, you know, all of these, as you probably gather, there's uh, the, the format of the Vimala Kipi Sutra is, uh, you know, all these Vimala Kirti uh, projects this, he's, he sends his message to the Buddha that he's sick. Uh, and uh, the Buddha sends all of his, his arhats and bodhisattvas to, uh, to console Vimalakirti, to see how he's doing. And uh, sort of one by one, uh, as they're kind of dispatched to see Vimalakirti, they say, oh, please, don't send me there. Don't send me to see Vimalakirti, because the last time I visited, you know, he, he read me the riot act. And uh, then the book uh, unfolds in a lot of dialogues. So this one uh, begins with this wonderful and perplexing proposition. Prince Manjushri said to the Lichavi Vimalkipi, good sir, how does the Bodhisattva take the path that ends in mastering the qualities of a Buddha? Manjushri, the Bodhisattva takes the path that ends in mastering the qualities of a Buddha when he takes the wrong path. Uh, and then Manjushri said, but what does it mean to say that the Bodhisattva takes the wrong path? And this is a long passage, uh, just to touch on this. He takes the path of the five sins entailing immediate retribution, and yet he is not corrupted by malice or cruelty. He takes the path of rebirth in the hells, and yet he is free of all stain of defilement. Uh, and so, so on and so forth. This goes on and on. Um, let's, let's see, there's a few other good ones. He takes the path of the weak, the ugly, and the deformed, and yet he's obtained the body of a Narayana and is attracted to all sentient beings. Um, he takes the demeanor, he displays the demeanor of the old, the weak, and the sick, yet he is completely eliminated to all illness and transcended fear of death. Uh, he displays the behavior of the wealthy, yet he constantly reflects on the notion of transitoriness, and he has put a stop to all forms of inquisitiveness. 
the Bodhisattva makes a show of watching the arrays of dancing girls in the seraglio. Uh, and yet, having crossed over to the other side of the swamp of desires, he wanders in the homeless life. Uh, so, you're getting... Uh, one of the ways that um, that this has been framed is uh, the reconciliation of opposites. And I'm not quite comfortable with that. There's, um, in the introduction, uh, There's a long note in the one of the later chapters that just goes into the, the language of uh, and the, the translation of kind of what's translated as a reconciliation of opposites. Uh, which means something like uh, the proposition of these opposing pairs. So I don't think so much it's reconciliation, it's it's inclusion. And I think the metaphor that that uh, one of the translators uses is like um, the shells of a of a clam. You know, so one one should. One shell is one side, and the other shell is the other side. But then you think about it, there's this, there's this clam beam in the middle that has both sides uh, are necessary to complete it. So this is, this is the challenge. And I found this puzzling uh, as I was, as I had previously studied the Vimalakirti Sutra, uh, what troubled me was the notion that the Bodhisattva would, for example, the where he goes to the bars, and yet, you know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't consort with the women or he doesn't get drunk. And it's like, well, so is he really going there? What's he doing there? And um, for some reason, internally, I found that a contradiction. It's saying like, well, he goes there, but he's, he's not really, he's not really caught in, he's not actually participating in the activity of that place. And... Sorry, he doesn't inhale? No, he doesn't inhale. <laughs> right. Uh, that's right. Uh, but when I reflected, when I reflect more, I think, well, this is... I mean, I have experience, I have an experience like this. Uh, I mean, one experience I had in uh, in the 90s, we were in far northern corner uh, of uh, Thailand, near the, the Golden Triangle in uh, uh, I think the town was Chiang Rai. To the tip of uh, Thailand, where it's right over the border from, from Burma on one side and from Laos on the other. And um, there was, there were a lot of robbers. Uh, and uh, this is where kind of a, it was a location for the trafficking of young Thai and Burmese women. Uh, 
right there in, in Chiang Rai, but also then they were, uh, it was kind of a way station for, uh, for prostitution that took place elsewhere in Thailand and elsewhere in the world. So we went to this model. It's like a bunch of us, Buddhist practitioners, including one monk, uh, in robes. And uh, we sat and talked with some of the girls. And they were, they were girls. You know, they were like 15, 16, really young. And uh, we were not there to sample the wares, so to speak. But we were there to bear witness, which, which we did. It lasted about a half an hour until things got really dicey. We looked on very weirdly, realized we had to get out of there, which we did. But the upshot of that is that several of us, myself included, uh, having seen this, then participated in supporting organizations that were rescuing rescuing young women from uh, this kind of path and teaching them other uh, skills that might make them employable. Uh, and I think that that's what we're seeing here when the Bodhisattva goes to these different realms, it's to bear witness so that he or she can take the form that's necessary to uh, help free sentient beings who might otherwise be trapped in those realms. The other aspect that comes out in the, in the narrative, which I think is a point, is a point for us, uh, as they go on to explore, uh, Vimalakirti and Manjushri are uh, describing why the wrong path would be the necessary path. So it's this complicated idea. Someone, good sir, who sees the unconditioned, who has already achieved confirmation of liberation, that would be an arhat, an awakened being who is not a bodhisattva and is not a tatagata, but is free from the cycle of rebirth. Someone, good sir, who sees the unconditioned, who has already achieved confirmation of liberation, cannot conceive the aspiration to that perfect awakening which cannot be surpassed. It is only the person who has not seen the truths and who inhabits the conditioned, the dwelling of defilements, who can conceive the aspiration to the perfect awakening which cannot be surpassed. You could say, good sir, one could say, good sir, that it is like the blue water lilies, the pink lotuses, red water lilies, white lotuses, and white water lilies, which do not grow in the desert, but grow when their seeds are scattered in silt and sludge. In the same way, good sir, the qualities of a Buddha do not grow in someone whose attainment of the unconditioned is already confirmed. <clears throat> they grow in those living beings 
who find themselves in the silt and sludge of defilements. One could say that it is just like seeds, which do not grow in the sky, but grow when planted in the ground. In the same way, the qualities of the Buddha do not grow in someone whose attainment of the unconditioned is already confirmed. The qualities of the Buddha grow in someone only after the aspiration to awakening has arisen as a result of conceiving the false view of the existence of a real person. So, you can see the tangle there. Uh, and also, you can see for us the opportunity that we have because our because we are flawed, because we are not already free from the wheel of birth and death, we have the opportunity to aspire to become bodhisattvas and tathagatas. And because we have a very clear awareness of our own location in the silt and sludge of this life, we can feel for other beings who are similarly uh, caught in the conditions of this world. So this world that we live in um, Uh, you know, the, this idea of the hells which are, which are uh, attached to all the infinite Buddha fields. So every Buddha field, this is one of the conceits of Mahayana Buddhism, is that there are, there's like an infinite number of Buddha fields. And every one of them has uh, a Buddha kind of watching over, taking care of this is this is uh, that particular Buddha's turf to take care of this Buddha field. So the Buddha field that we live in is the Saha world. Uh, and there's lots of different Buddha fields. And then there's this there's Buddha fields where which are characterized by uh, the raining of blossoms from the, from the heavens, and when these blossoms rain down on sentient beings, they're awakened. Or uh, sweet nectar is dripping from the trees, or the, or the streams run with some holy uh, liquid, and it, you, you take a sip of it and you're awakened. Well, that's not the Saha world. The saha, saha means to be endured. It's the world in which our awakening is contingent upon our experience of suffering, of pain, and loss. And that itself is the door to awakening. And I think that's the message of this chapter is that, you know, if you want, you can pursue the, the Arhat path, which is just kind of to cultivate internally, to cultivate yourself and to free yourself from the, uh, from the cycle of birth and death, which is, that's a characterization of the so-called Inayana. Whether that's accurate or not, I, I don't want to get into that discussion. Inayana is a polemical term. But rather in the Mahayana, we take the vow to 
return until everyone is taken across. We take the vow, if you will, I will not abandon you. I will not disparage you. I will include you. No matter where your position is in this world, which is really hard. You know, it's like, yeah, everyone's a Buddha, everyone's a Bodhisattva, not Donald Trump, or maybe not Adolf Hitler. This is arguing, this is cutting against the distinction that we make. And the challenge that's thrown us, thrown to us is what is the Buddha in even these needs that we find unacceptable? Uh, how are they our teachers? And if they are our teachers, what do we owe them in return in order to free them from their suffering? This is really difficult. And I don't have this figured out. But I'll probably carry this question with me all my life. How do I do this? You're recognizing that the very, at the very center of my human flawed consciousness is the duality making machinery. The machinery that wants to say this, not this, or yes, no. And how do I work with that? How do I see my own divisive nature and find compassion for that? so that I'm not caught in the same kinds of duality that uh, I might habitually be projected into. And I think that the Vimalakirti Sutra is just one of the cutting-edge sutras for pointing us at this question, which it does again and again and again. You had a, uh, you know, lecture, a talk on the goddess chapter, is that right? Was that last week? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that's another way of coming at the same question. Uh, and that's a, a pretty radical view uh, that's, that's proposed in that chapter. Uh-huh. And we are faced with those views. We are faced with similar challenges in our thinking, in our values, in our way of looking at what's unfolding in this on this planet. How do we? Hold a view that's inclusive. How do we let the very suffering that we see, which breaks our hearts, lead us to a larger, a greater capacity? Um,
I think I'm just going to sing you the song and then open up to questions, discussions, if that's okay. I don't think I need to explicate more. So, the song, this is funny. It's not from the Pamela Kirti Sutra as much. It's from the Lotus Sutra. Um, this is a song that was written by uh, Greg Fain and Ben Gustin at Tassahara. At Tassahara, in the middle of the practice period, usually there's a, a, a practice period, mid practice period, dinner, and skip night. People make up songs or they sing, sing songs or recite poems. So this uh, is basically chapter 20 of the Lotus Sutra. Uh, it's, uh, this is a great version of the chapter. <laughs> it pretty much gets the whole deal, but in form of a song. Um, and the song is called Our Hero, and I'm not going to explain it to you because explains itself, but it's got a chorus, which uh, comes around four times. I'll sing it the first time, and the next three, uh, you can do it. Let me just get another drink here. And this is actually, there's a recording of this on, on the CD that's out there, too. That you really ought to know about A holy book that has the power to remove all fear and doubt This book tells the story of a man He means the world to me He could just as well have been a woman Except for male hegemony So they call it the Bodhisattva never disparaged The Bodhisattva never despised and I'm making it my life's ambition to see the world through his pure eyes. This is the chorus. I would never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. Where you only see your weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me, I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. Now the Bodhisattva never disparaging the countless countless in the past. In the time of the counterfeit Dharma, he was something of an outcast. Because the monks and nuns of his time, they were noted for their arrogance and vanity. And these were the folks who exercised great power and authority. But my boy, he never concerned himself if they treated him like a freak. He just bowed everybody equally. And these are the words he'd speak. Okay, this is your turn. I would never disparage you or keep you at arm's length. Where you only see weaknesses, I only see your strength. I would never despise you or put you down in any way. Because it's clear to me, I can plainly see you'll be a Buddha someday. I love you. He never better recited the scriptures much. He only liked to practice respect. But the monks and nuns of his time, they didn't meet it like you might expect. Instead, they cursed him, and they reviled him, and they wished that he would go. Because they all had self-esteem issues, like everybody else I know. So they beat him and pelted him with clubs and stones, trying to drive him away. He just run off to a safe distance, 
And he turned around and said, have a little time left, I believe, and I'd like to open it to questions and comments. And look, how do you do the, how do you take questions online? So, uh, David, raise our technical okay. call on people there, and you can see people raise their hands here. And, uh, so, yeah, comments, comments questions? Yes. What what made you want to teach the Dharma? Um, I think what made me want to teach the Dharma was two things. First of all, I guess I want to answer what made me want to practice the Dharma, mm-hmm. and then and then the second practice the Dharma. You know, when I I came to Buddhism. Uh, well, I came to it early, but I couldn't do it. This was, you know, in my, I think I was 19, uh, but I wasn't ready to to take it on in the midst of everything else that was going, going on in the world. Uh, but at the point which I came back in my early to mid-30s, I just had kind of run into a wall in my life and sort of run out of script. And I didn't know what to do. And this is, that's what I returned to. And at the point at which I, when I walked into Berkeley Zen Center, very quickly, what I, I think I talk about this in, in my book, uh, I just felt there were people there that I observed who had a kind of quality in being that I aspired to. Uh, And then I just threw myself into this. And I think I didn't dare to frame the idea of teaching Dharma, but I was around the teaching so much. And uh, I think at almost every stage, there's there's a kind of message, like uh, every stage of my practice and every stage of, of my, of all kinds of things in my life. It's like a recognition 
oh, I could do that. Um, and I was around people who were beginning, who were on the same path of coming to become teachers. And typing was one, other people, uh, and I was around, I had just this incredible fortune. Uh, I lived basically in potentially daily contact with my teacher for nearly 40 years. And I just absorbed a lot from him, from how he was. Not that I agreed with him all the time, but, uh, and I felt that I had the, the human capacity um, and perhaps the intellectual capacity to teach him. I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this seemed like it seemed like a good thing to me. Thank you. Thank really, you. Good question. Robert's hand is up on Zoom. Okay. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this uh, human capacity for creating divisions, uh, dualities rather, that you mentioned, and if you had any advice for becoming more aware of it in order to not let it uh, take you away with it. Thank you. Um, perhaps there is a an organic, perhaps it's hardwired into us in a way to protect what we think of as the self. And being humans with capacity for reflection, uh, we have a very elaborate and elaborate, uh, yeah, an elaborate capacity to construct the ideas of the self, maybe more than some other species. But you know, every species seems to be protective of its own organic being, right? Uh, and at the same time, uh, Species are protective of their own species. Uh, so uh, there's always this, uh, there's this mechani mechanism of uh, perception of self and other, whether it's the individual self or the, the collective self or the tribal self, etc. And um, I think that we have the capacity to, as as our human our human capacity allows us to think beyond the narrow confines, and now we're stretching this to think beyond the conf the confines of our species, uh, to think about uh, how we take care of all the bees on the planet because we depend on. We depend on the on the complete interrelationship of all of life, and uh, also you might say an alternative vision that we are also capable is a vision of oneness of one life of big mind. And so we're, we're, we are always in dialogue with ourselves about this. So that's at least a tentative response. Alex online has a question. Yes. Uh, firstly, I want to say thank you for the for the wonderful Dharma talk and for the wonderful song. Thank you. Uh, but I wanted to say that what you were saying about the um, this golden precept and this ability to stay stay with someone and be beside someone through something really resonates with my experience as a hospital chaplain. Right. Um, I think uh, 
There is a perception about that kind of role, sort of by extension, there's a perception about what we should do in circumstances where, um, you know, maybe we can't help, maybe someone really is too sick that we can't do anything. Um, You know, people are asking these big questions that we don't have answers to. Um, I think the perception is sometimes that, oh, well, we need to, we need to answer those questions. We need to remedy the illness. We need to, you know, make this problem disappear when in actuality what the what the real work is with the real um labor there the thing that helps is actually just staying there um and being willing to to be present and say you know i i don't know what happens next i can't say that everything's going to be okay but what i can say is that i'll I'll be right here regardless so thank you well thank you for doing that work and yeah i've i've been working uh working with the training of chaplains for about 10 to 12 years at Upaya Zen Center. And one of the expressions that we use, which I think is really related to everything that I've been talking about, uh, is uh, coming alongside. Is just, it's, you know, walking side by side with someone, accompanying them. And recognizing, I think there's there's other dimensions of that expression and also of what, what I was saying about I will not abandon you. But as far as coming alongside, we have to recognize we can only go so far together. You know, there's a threshold that the person we're with is going to have to cross by themselves, whether it's a threshold into healing or it's a threshold into letting go and dying. We're not going to be able to step over that threshold with them, right? We can we can accompany them to the gate. And sometimes that's a very long, that's a long and very important journey because it, it gives them encouragement and confidence. The other thing that talking with with uh, my wife Lori about this expression, I will not abandon you, what, what she pointed out uh, when we were talking last week is uh, there's a, a kind of Embedded in this is is another training, which is saying no. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's like, you know, for example, she has a really long-standing relationship with, with a, a gentleman who is has a lot of health problems. He has a lot of psychological problems. Uh, he's been off and on homeless. And can call all the time. You know, and always wanting money, always wanting uh, Lori to do something for him. Part of what she's been She's had to learn to say no. So I can, she can say, I can do this. This is what I can offer you. And she doesn't say, you can never call me again. You know, so it's not, it's not this kind of conclusive no. But it's also, there's a mutual, it's like a mutual negotiation of, what's the most effective way for us to be in relationship? Does, does that make any sense? Uh, so it's, you know, in terms of related to what, say, Alex was saying a moment ago, um, you can't just take on someone else's suffering. And at least in, in the Upaya chaplaincy, we, there are these words that all of us know, empathy, compassion, 
And uh, I guess for this, from the standpoint of the way we've come to define them, define them in the by a capitalism, they're like empathy is is this kind of merging capacity, and you need some degree of empathy. Compassion includes empathy, but it includes also uh, the establishment of some boundaries and the recognition of oneself as both in commonality and in independence of the other person. And this is a very hard thing to negotiate, especially with people that we love. So, um, thank you. That's really well said and really helpful. I think we have time for maybe one more okay. comment or question. Yes, Jen. Hi. I've gotten to be a fan of Michael Hudson. And of who? Michael Hudson. He's Why an economist. Oh. And um, I, was, I was listening to him yesterday when he said that uh, in the ancient language, and I don't know the exact origin, the, the word for slave was mountain girl because the people in the city would go raid the mountains and bring the girls back for, uh, and, and uh, that was the origin of the word slave. Hmm. And I, you know, I can't say more than that because that was all I got out of it. But I wanted to mention this idea of going somewhere and not participating. Yeah. Because I had a friend in the Korean War who um, went to the front line. And on his way, he took out every piece, every bullet from his bandolier or whatever you call it, and dropped it so that when he got to the front line, he would not be able to kill anybody. And so he went to the scene, but he did not. I mean, I think it's an example of what we talked about. And um, and then... Um, I have a big problem with um, people who are addicted. And um, when you talk about our being protective of our own species or of the other species in the world or the world that supports us, um, there are people who are addicted to money. and. Um, the example is if you eat 10 bananas, you don't want any more bananas for a while. But if you collect money, you can never have enough. You just want more and more and more. And money has this effect on people. And it supersedes their protection of the species and their protection of the world. Yeah. And it's not the only addiction that does that. But, um, so basically my question is, um, I just wanted you to comment on those three examples. Well, the first example is pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, that's that's a very bold thing to do, to go to the front lines and kind of divest yourself of all the bullets. And I sort of admire that. Uh, you get you can. You could, there could be other consequences of that yeah, military He could have easily gotten killed. He didn't get killed. He could have killed. He could have gotten court-martialed. Who knows? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the choice that he made, which I would respect. Um, this question of addiction, or the question, of, it's a question of acquisitiveness mm -hmm. as... Um, Forgetting, there's there's a it's on the tip of my tongue and I could find it. There's a sutra, a Pali sutra in, in early Buddhist texts, which completely lays out the uh, the development of human society in those terms from from a time when uh, everyone had exactly what they needed and enough of that 
for the immediate for that day, and then people started accumulating, and then people started saving, and then and then from that all of the structures and uh, deformations of society take place. You know, and that's where we're at now. Uh, and I don't I. I think it's a dream that we're going to go back to these halcyon days where, you know, everybody is just kind of living for the moment. Uh, but uh, how is it we deal with our propensity to addiction? And this is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, version of the precepts uh, of uh, greed. He, you know, he talks about this very clearly. Addiction to all kinds of things, all kinds of acquisitions, uh, and uh, all kinds of distortions of mind. And this is what we're asked to contend with. We're asked to contend with this, you know. So uh, we can help each other, and maybe that's where we have to end. Thank you. Thank you.